So were there any questions from last time or anything people wanted to go over before we start with uh, today's lecture? Sorry, that's not yours. Okay, so we were talking about photo detectors last time. Thank you. Um, we're talking about photo detectors as tools that we use to measure the intensity of light. Uh, today we'll talk a little bit about how we measure the wavelength of light, another property uh, that we're interested in. So just to sort of wrap up what we were talking about last time with photo detectors, um, we have various techniques we can use when using detectors, regardless of what type of detector we have. Well, we can measure the photo current directly. And so photo current is a term that um, can mean a couple of things. It's the flux of electrons or the flow of, the flow of photons into your detector. And that ideally gets converted into a flow of electrons out of the detector. And that's what we mean by photo current. Um, so we can measure that directly with some sort of ammeter. Um, if we have a very small number, a small photon rate, we can literally count the photons using something like a uh, photomultiplier tube that amplifies the signal produced by each, each photon hit. Um, and if you do that, you're really just uh, counting as opposed to measuring a discrete current. I spoke briefly about this uh, technique of chopping a beam so that what you're trying to detect, the power in the beam, is not at uh, DC or zero frequency. It's uh, the power is being modulated. And then by using what's called a lock-in amplifier, where you detect the power at a particular frequency, the frequency that you modulate at, you can differentiate between your signal, which is coming from your beam, and any ambient light source or other noise sources that aren't going to be uh, present at the same frequency. A um, couple other techniques. Boxcar integrator. Um, I had a slide on that. Might as well go back. Did I not get to that slide? Okay, so we'll get to that in a minute. A boxcar integrator is a device for averaging a repetitive signal. So one of the ways to reduce noise is always to average over longer periods of time. If you have a steady signal but fluctuating noise, that noise will average out. Um, that can be hard to do if you have pulsed, a pulsed laser or a pulse signal you're trying to detect because you can't average over a long period of time. You have a short pulse. So a boxcar integrator is a way to average um, parts of a pulse in sort of a repetitive way. So we'll see that in a couple slides. And uh, a street camera is a technique for directly detecting um, the, the pulse shape, the temporal pulse shape of a short pulse. So let's look at a couple of those in a little bit more detail. I mentioned the direct photocurrent measurements using something like an ammeter to measure the current coming out of uh, a photodiode. So here's a photodiode being illuminated with a photon, some light, so there's going to be some uh, current flow. So we have a reverse bias on this. So there's some, say, some positive voltage here, ground over here. So um, this voltage would tend to drive current in the reverse direction of the diode. So nothing will flow until the light hits the diode 
and that will uh, produce charge carriers that can then flow due to that, that voltage. Now, if you look in the spec sheet for a photodiode, you'll see parameters. We, we saw this uh, in one of the spec sheets last time. Parameter like the uh, cutoff frequency. And it will have some, some value associated with it. And then there will be some asterisk describing the conditions in which the photodiode is used. It'll say something like, the reverse bias is 5 volts. So that's our bias voltage up there. And the impedance will always list 50 ohms, the load impedance. That's that resistor right there. Okay, so you need a resistor for the current traveling through the resistor to produce a voltage that you actually measure. Does anyone know why 50 ohms would be the impedance listed? If you're interested in operating out here at high frequency, this is hundreds of megahertz, that's radio frequencies. Um, the wavelength of 300 megahertz signals is on the order of a foot or a meter. It's sort of small relative to a laboratory scale uh, experiment. And so what happens is the cables that carry the signal, say from your photodiode over to your oscilloscope, can be long compared to the wavelength of the signal, that you're, the electrical signal you're trying to measure. As a result, you need to treat those as transmission lines as opposed to just wires in a circuit. Um, and in, there's a whole theory of transmission lines that you can study if you're in electrical engineering, but um, essentially, in order for things to behave properly, transmission lines need to be terminated with 50 ohm impedances. So to explain that just a little bit, I mean, that's, that's what you should take away, is that uh, a, a cable that you have in the lab should have a 50 ohm uh, impedance at the end. So let's say you've got an oscilloscope here. You've got an input. Chances are you can set that input to either 1 mega ohm or 50, 50 ohms. Okay, most oscilloscopes will have a switch to do that. If they don't, they'll be set at 1 mega ohm. What that means is the little pin in the center of that BNC cable internally has a 100 or 1 mega ohm resistor that connects it to ground. Okay, so if that's the case, you would normally put in a uh, T-junction. Yeah, how best to draw this? Let me just draw this as a line. So you normally put in a, a little T-junction and put in manually a 50 ohm resistor connecting it to ground. The reason you do that is because transmission lines have what's called a characteristic impedance. They, uh, that's related to the speed at which the signals flow on the line. It's a lot like the index of refraction for an optical wave. Characteristic impedance for an electrical wave governs how fast the wave propagates. And for the typical cables that we use in the lab, that characteristic impedance is 50 ohms. And it's usually written in Z sub C or Z naught. 
And so just like in optics, when you go from a material of one index of refraction to a material with a different index of refraction, you get reflections. When you go from one impedance here to a different impedance, you get reflections. And so in order to avoid your signal reflecting back and not getting into the oscilloscope, you need to terminate this transmission line with the same impedance as the characteristic impedance of the line, okay, which is 50 ohms. And so you'd frequently have 50 ohm termination. So oftentimes you take your, um, your photodiode right here. That photodiode would be connected to a bias voltage, a battery basically, and the other end would go through, through a cable and connect to your oscilloscope. And whatever impedance you either manually put here or is internal to the oscilloscope is the one that's going to convert the current flowing into a voltage. Remember these are current sources, not voltage sources. So it's only the impedance that converts it to a voltage. Okay, so with that 50 ohm value for the impedance, you get a particular cutoff frequency. That cutoff frequency is uh, one over RC. Okay, this R is the load impedance. The C is the internal impedance of the photodetector. So if you want a higher cutoff frequency, if you want this to operate faster, you need a lower load impedance. Okay. You can't just, if you just lower this, you're not going to measure much signal here because you're going to get reflection and you're essentially shorting out this. So you get, for the same current, smaller and smaller voltages at your oscilloscope. Okay, so this is the way, this is a very simple circuit that converts uh, photocurrent into a voltage. It's the one that's used to calculate uh, the cutoff frequency in spec sheets, and it's uh, not the one that you use in an experiment if you have the resources and the, the need to go anything beyond this. Okay, in an actual experiment, most experiments where you need high frequency response from your photodetectors, you don't operate them in this way. You operate them like this. And what this is, this is called an op-amp, an operational amplifier. How many people have seen op-amps in a circuits class or some other course? So there's a few rules of op-amps. Now we could, I could spend the next 20 minutes describing how the circuit works, but uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm happy to do that if you're actually interested in implementing this. Uh, what we need to know about this is this device will take two inputs, compare them, and produce an output. And it's got some feedback here to the, that's a negative, or an inverting input, um, to produce negative feedback. And in this particular configuration, the way this works is because this output is grounded, and this uh, comparator with the negative feedback will always try to drive the output such that this voltage equals that voltage. That means this voltage right here will always be ground. 
And that's shown by background right there as well. Um, and so your photodiode is basically connected directly to ground with no series resistance. So the, seri the resistance that this has to drive is not some external load. It's only the internal intrinsic impedance of the, uh, the photodiode, which is probably less than an ohm. So the frequency, the cutoff frequency, can increase by orders of magnitude. So the current ends up having to go through this resistor here, this feedback resistor, and that's what sets the voltage gain there. This is an active device. It's powered. It's an amplifier. In order for it to function, in order for the circuit to function, this, this amplifier needs to be within its, its operating regime. And so typically you can get these op amps, you can get them up to gigahertz operation, but conventional op amps might work up to uh, a megahertz or two. Um, you can get very high speed ones that go much higher in frequency. And so what happens is the uh, frequency cutoff ends up not being limited by this resistor, but by the maximum operating frequency of this op amp. So it's just a matter of finding an op amp that's fast enough for your desired application. Okay, so that's not enough information for you to fully understand that circuit. It's only enough for you to realize that this sort of conventional circuit is not always the most useful to use. If you have an application where you need high frequency operation, hopefully there's a trick you need to do. And uh, this is sort of a standard trick. So you can, you can learn more about it by uh, looking up any sort of photodetector circuit in a textbook or online. Okay, so I mentioned photon counting is a technique used for very low photon rates. Um, so typically, low photon rates, the photomultiplier tube is a uh, is a useful device for detecting uh, low photon counts. PMT means photomultiplier tube. And because these photomultiplier tubes have this huge gain, can be on the order of a million. So a single photon can produce like a pulse of a, a million electrons. Um, they tend to saturate at low, low powers. And you can use that as an effective way to get a digital signal for discrete photon arrival time. So if you turn up the gain such that a single photon saturates your detector, the lack of a photon leaves it, leaves it empty or quiet, then you have a digital output pulse where it's on every time there's a photon detected and it's off when there's no photon detected, really letting you count the photons opposed to just measuring some continuous average value. Um, so one of the advantages of doing that is you're not sensitive to the gain of the device. It's a digital, digital system. Um, and whatever sort of the dark current is or the background current level, as long as you set your gains and your thresholds such that that's still considered low as opposed to high, you don't need to worry about dark current. Um, instead of some sort of continuous dark current, what you end up with is what we call dark pulses. Um, so in the absence of any intended light hitting your photomultiplier tube, you're still getting pulses. Um, and that happens, and that's primarily due to cosmic rays. So gamma rays, for instance, uh, have enough energy to excite an electron off of the, the uh, 
the photocathode. There's nothing you can do to block them out. And so there's always going to be these sort of dark pulses. Uh, transistor transistor logic is what TTL stands for, but it's a digital signal. It goes between, say, 0 and 5 volts. So it just means a, a digital signal. And then, of course, the rate at which you can count um, depends on uh, sort of this dark current rate. You don't want to average a long period of time that you're always detecting dark pulses to measure uh, rapid compared to that. Um, another technique to improve signal to noise in a measurement that you make is using a lock-in amplifier. This is what a particular commercial lock-in amplifier looks like. It's a, it's a box. Um, it's got a couple inputs here and then uh, some either analog or digital readouts. These are always bundled together with a chopper. And what this does is, uh, let me draw the example experiment that uses a lock-in. You've got a laser that's going to pump some gas, and you're going to look for the emission from that gas as it absorbs the laser energy, pumped to a higher state, and then decays via spontaneous emission. So you'd expect there to be weak fluorescence, so not a whole lot of power. You might use a photomultiplier too. Um, if you had enough power that uh, you could use a photodiode, you might uh, try to put that photodiode signal onto an oscilloscope. And you know, you've got some voltage as a function of time, and there's probably some average power hitting your detector, and there's going to be fluctuations in noise due to room lights, due to electronic noise, all sorts of ambient noise sources. And that can obscure the difference between zero and, and your actual value. Okay, so you have a couple options. You can average over a very long period of time. Right, and that will help minimize the fluctuations. Or another thing you can do is to chop this beam. I sort of drew this picture last time. So this is a chopper wheel. So it's a rotating disc that has windows cut into it. And this is a motor driver that such that when you shine the laser through the holes in the wheel, and it spins around, it gets chopped, and produces this, uh, this square waveform. And you can set the frequency using the, uh, this driver. And then what you do is you typically would uh, put in a photodetector that just detects that, that chopped frequency. So the direct signal from the laser as opposed to from the gas. So this is a very strong signal. And it's basically your clock. Um, you can also, this has an uh, output clock that you could use, but it's not going to be as accurate as actually observing the, the pulses on the light. Um, and so you send that clock and this photodiode into a lock-in. The signal from the photodiode is called a signal. That's what you're trying to detect. The clock we call the reference. It's a frequency reference. It tells us what frequency we should be looking for the signal at. Or it tells the lock-in what frequency it should look for the signal at. So that's what these inputs are. There's a reference 
and then uh, this one actually has two inputs. And what that will do is it will um, multiply the two together. Only, this is a standard Fourier transform technique, but only signals that have a component at this frequency when you multiply will produce a uh, DC value. Then it will low pass filter to remove any AC terms. And the DC terms, it will plot there on this dial or this meter. It's telling you how much of your signal hitting your photodiode is at the frequency measured by this reference. Okay? And so if you do this properly, um, you can arrange that frequency to be above the frequency at which other noise sources are present. Okay, so most, most of the dominant noise sources occur below 1 megahertz. Well, these mechanical choppers can chop up to about 10 kilohertz. You can get electro-optic ones to go faster than that, but um, it gets you away from a lot of the low-frequency noise. Okay, so that's not good, so we'll skip that. Um, we'll cover this in more detail when we talk about specific experiments later in the class that use this. Um, just briefly mention the boxcar integrator. This is just, it's supposed to be a picture of what the boxcar integrator looks like, the box. Um, and what it does is if you have a repetitive signal, so say a pulsed laser, where each pulse is going to produce an identical signal, and you want to average it. You can't just average time because the pulse is only present for a short period of time. So the boxcar integrator uh, basically has the same type of setup where you have a reference and a signal. And it uses the reference as a trigger to say, OK, a pulse just started from the laser. Now look for a signal. And it will record that signal. And then it will wait till the next pulse and the next signal. And it will average repetitive signals. And they're all synced using the reference. So it's a way to average a repetitive pulsed signal. And then the last detection method that I will mention is kind of an interesting one. It's called the street camera. It's, um, it's a way to visualize what the temporal waveform of a pulse looks like. So imagine you've got uh, a pulse that looks like this in time. So as it's propagating forward, you've got, say, a large leading edge and then some trailing edge. You want to observe that, but if you don't have a photo detector that's, that, or electronics that are fast enough to follow the rapid rise and fall of that pulse, you need some other way to to detect its, uh, its temporal characteristics. And so one way is doing something very similar to what's done in an oscilloscope or a CRT uh, monitor. And that is to have a time-varying voltage applied across two plates. And so as you sweep the voltage, um, if you're shooting electrons through here, you'll scan an electron beam across a, a, a screen. And the idea is you take a, uh, another one of these photocathodes like you have in a photomultiplier tube and you, you use this, uh, the energy in this pulse to produce free electrons that get ejected from this. And so this pulse gets converted into a pulse of electrons that's flowing through your street camera. The region of the pulse that's high energy will produce more photoelectrons. And as they pass through, um, this scans them left to right, for example. And if you put that onto a phosphorescent screen, you can then uh, map out 
the intensity of the electrons across the screen. So that's exact. everything past this, these electrons, this is just a TV set, a CRT TV set. It's just that instead of having some uh, video signal driving it, you have some optical signal producing the uh, modulated uh, beam of electrons. So that's a, a common way that very fast pulses are measured. Um, and then the last thing I'll mention is that uh, one limitation of detection, so what type of detector you use, is that they tend to have limited range over which their response is linear. So a very uh, obvious example of that is the photomultiplier tube. Um, it saturates very rapidly after only a few photons uh, in one measurement interval. And so oftentimes, if you have a large fluctuation in the signal you're trying to detect, uh, you can't choose a detector that can, can uh, accurately reproduce that fluctuation in its, uh, in, its detect, in its output. So in such cases, instead of doing sort of this direct detection, I know this is very just a block diagram, but instead of just having um, some photodetector that measures the response of some system, and produces a voltage, um, what you can do is you can take that output from the photodetector and somehow feed back to your system to keep the system having the same value. Okay, so this is obviously for optics experiments, but an easier analogy is a thermostat. So thermostat is a way to uh, basically use such a feedback loop to do a very similar thing. Um, if you wanted to measure the temperature in the room, if you wanted to measure the temperature, say the outside air, you could take a thermometer, right, and then follow its, its reading. If your thermometer only uh, had increments between, say, 60 degrees and 70 degrees, you couldn't, you couldn't measure the temperature outside once it ran beyond those, that range. So what could you do? Well, one thing you could do is you could use that thermometer so there's a thermometer over here in the thermostat. And you can tell it, here's a set point, say 65 degrees. If it falls below 65 degrees, feed back to a heater right, that turns on until the temperature reaches 65. If it goes above 65 degrees, turn on the air conditioning until it drops to 65 degrees. Right? And then that thermostat will always read 65 degrees right, when this active feedback loop is closed. So how do you measure the temperature outside then? How can you tell if it's hot or cold out? Yep, it's cold out, the heater's on. Right? And by measuring how hard the heater is being driven and how hard the air conditioner is being driven. Now, most of our heaters and air conditioners are binary, they're on or they're off. But if you had one that was uh, linear, so you could turn it up uh, to whatever level necessary to maintain the desired temperature then you could use that feedback signal right here that's being fed back into the system as a measure of what the system would be doing if you weren't feeding back to control it. So that technique is used extensively when the nonlinearity of a detector is an issue. Um, so one, one optics example 
Uh, I work on a project called LIGO. LIGO is a large, high-power interferometer used for detecting gravitational waves. It has a laser and a Michelson interferometer. So you have optical waves. The path length of these two arms, L1 and L2, are set such that the output of this interferometer is at a dark port, at a dark fringe. So if you were to plot the intensity as a function of the path length difference, because of the interference, it's going to go from a maximum to a minimum. So the system has 100 kilowatts of laser power circulating. If you were to put 100 kilowatts of laser power on the photodiode, you'd melt the photodiode instantaneously. So we're trying to detect relative motion of the arm mirrors. And normally, the way you do that is you'd have your system operating at some point, And as the power fluctuated, you would assume that's due to the length changes. We can't do that because we can't operate the system up here at 50 kilowatts of power. So instead, we operate the system down here where there's zero power on the detector. And then we feed back. Anytime power is sensed here, feedback adjusts the length of the mirrors to keep this at a dark port. So there's some uh, feedback circuit that can move the mirror to keep these mirrors fixed. So as natural forces, gravitational waves, try to displace the mirrors, we feed back to keep them fixed in position. And then we just measure how hard we're pushing back. And that tells us how hard nature's pushing forward. We're always in equilibrium with what nature's trying to do to the mirrors to keep them locked and keep that output at a dark fringe. OK, so interferometers. Uh, sort of our next topic, they're related to our next topic, which is um, detecting not just the intensity of light, but detecting its wavelength. So really, if we're doing laser spectrometry, we're trying to measure the intensity of a beam going through a sample as we vary its wavelength. So now that we've talked about how to measure its intensity, let's talk about how to measure its wavelength. Um, there's two main ways. One is with a device called a spectrometer. So a spectrometer causes different wavelengths generally to be split. So from a beam, different wavelengths will propagate at different angles coming out of a, a, a dispersing device, like a prism or a, a grating. And so by measuring the direction that the beam takes coming out of, say, a prism, you can measure, you can infer what its wavelength must be. And then an interferometer something like what I've drawn on the board, is a device that uses interference between two beams. And when the beams are an integer number of wavelengths apart, you get constructive interference. If they're a half integer, you get destructive interference. So the interference condition depends on the wavelength. And by measuring the interference condition, you can infer the wavelength. So we'll talk about spectrometers first. And this is what your new homework assignment is going to be on. Spectrometers. So in its sort of original incarnation, this is what a spectrometer looks like. This is a, a prism, glass prism, uh, basically a couple telescopes. Uh, light goes in through one telescope, and then it's observed 
coming out the other telescope. And this whole thing is mounted on a, a goniometer that lets you rotate uh, the observation telescope until you see the light. And when you do, you can read off the angle that it's being bent at, and that's going to be dependent on the wavelength, and then infer the wavelength of light that you're observing. So here's a picture or a schematic of what's going on there. We've got our light source, a pair of lenses, that's that telescope, another pair of lenses, that's that telescope, and an eye. Uh, typically, the eyepiece and the eye get replaced by a piece of film or a CCD here. And then what's not obvious here is that in this telescope, you have a slit, a narrow slit that uh, restricts the spatial extent of your input source. So we'll talk about why all that needs to be there in a second. Um, we'll also talk about some of the properties. We'll talk about the properties first, and then that will let us understand um, why these different elements need to be in place and what their, their effect on the different properties is. There's sort of three different um, properties of a spectrometer. There's the speed, which probably means nothing to you now. The spectral transmission, which is essentially what wavelengths it's useful at. And the resolving power, which is how fine of a, uh, how small of a wavelength change it can measure. So let's talk about speed first, since, uh, well, this is a picture of a grading spectrometer. Uh, I guess I'll show that before I talk about speed. The prism spectrometer uses a prism to separate different wavelengths of light into different angles. A grading spectrometer uses a grating to do the exact same thing. Really everything else on the slide is the same. There's one more instrumental property called the free spectral range, which I'll come back to in a minute. And that, that tells me um, what range of wavelengths I can resolve. Um, before confusing one spectral order of the grading with another. But like I said, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, first, let's talk about spectrometer speed, obvious of these different parameters. Um, speed in optics often refers to, uh, the term speed comes from cameras and the shutter speed of a lens. And a system that lets in lots of light allows you to have a faster shutter speed to capture the same amount of energy. And so the term speed now, outside of cameras, refers to how much light a system allows in. Something that lets more light in is said to have a faster speed. If it were a camera and it let more light in, you could use a faster shutter speed. OK, so uh, more specifically, it's defined as the solid angle in which light enter the spectrometer and be useful. So you can see that if we've got this slit at the input, and then we've got some optics downstream, if our light is focused too tightly coming into this slit, then it may, uh, some of the light may miss the downstream optics. Our beam at this point and further on may be larger than our optics. So some of the light that we're letting in is not going to be useful. If we have a slower beam, meaning a shallower acceptance angle, um, at some point we can capture all of the rays that come in. 
So ignore this lens for now. I, I didn't sort of notice when I drew this. This lens is drawn too small. But uh, this orange cone of rays is just small enough such that all the rays will pass through the prism. And if I had light focused any tighter, so it's coming in at a sharper angle, not all the rays would go through the prism. So the speed is the solid angle of this orange cone of rays, maximum acceptance angle of the device. So if the prism has an area A, and because we're viewing it sort of at an angle relative to its face, we'll call the visible area A prime. So that's just going to be like the area of the actual face times cosine of the angle the face makes relative to the light. So if A prime is the visible area, remember solid angle is uh, the area of a cone of rays that it subtends divided by the, uh, the distance of that cone squared, the radius of that, of that cone. And so this bundle of rays has an area A. Then we can trace it all the way back to this collimating lens right here. The collimating lens, because it's collimating, is one focal length away from our slit, where our light gets focused to. If it weren't, it wouldn't collimate the light. Okay, so if a bundle of rays of area A prime coming from a point a distance f away, the solid angle that bundle subtends is A prime over f squared. And that's the speed of the spectrometer. So if you focus the light more tightly than that. Um, some of the light is not going to hit the prism. It's going to leak out, and it might bounce off a few things and then go into your, go onto your CCD or into your detector and just provide background noise. So sending in light that has a larger uh, solid angle than the speed just produces background noise. And we'll see a little bit later that using uh, sending in light that has a solid angle less than the speed, doesn't fill this prism. And we'll see a little bit later that that results in a reduced resolution of the instrument. So that's not desirable either. OK, spectral transmission just means what wavelengths can be used. Um, that's largely determined by uh, the transparency region of these optics mainly the prism. Okay, so depending on what wavelength you want to use, you have prisms of different materials. So in the visible, uh, ordinary glass, fused quartz, or BK7 glass uh, works quite well. Ultraviolet, ordinary glass is opaque. You can use special materials, lithium fluoride or calcium fluoride. Um, in the mid-infrared, regardless of what material you have, there's absorption due to water vapor in the air. So if you're working in the mid-infrared, you need to put this whole thing in a vacuum or purge it with dry air or nitrogen. You typically see nitrogen purges. A lot easier and cheaper than evacuating the whole thing. Um, further into the infrared, you need different materials. So if you sodium chloride, various salts, calcium fluoride can be used for the prism. Um, and because different materials for this prism will transmit at different wavelengths. Um, that's what sets the spectral transmission of a prism spectrometer 
One way to get around that is to use a reflection grating. So here's a reflection grating spectrometer where there is no transmission through optics. Instead of having lenses, we have curved mirrors. And instead of having a prism, we have a reflection grating. And because all the optics get used in reflection, we don't care about the spectral transmission. And this can operate at essentially any wavelength at which these mirrors and grating are reflective. Much broader wavelength range. Uh, spectral resolving power was our third property of a spectrometer. So spectral resolving power is the inverse of the spectral resolution. Okay, so different ways to express these quantities. If delta lambda is the smallest wavelength you can resolve, you can tell the difference between two different wavelengths if they're separated by delta lambda or more. The spectral resolving power R is the wavelength you're interested in divided by that resolution. It essentially tells you how many different wavelengths you could separate. So the inverse of that would be the relative resolution, the relative spectral resolution. Okay, so um, what limits that? We've got a slit here, light going through the slit, going through the prism, and then being imaged over here on some detector. And because we have a slit, because this prism isn't infinitely wide, um, what we get at the output is not a spot right there, but actually a diffraction pattern. So a diffraction pattern for a slit looks like this, sinc squared function. And the criteria for when two diffraction patterns are resolved, meaning two different wavelengths coming in are separated, or their images of the slit are separated enough that you can resolve them, is when the peak of one diffraction pattern uh, overlaps with the first zero of the other diffraction pattern. It's called the Rayleigh criterion. Okay, so the diffraction pattern, uh, say, of this prism, this prism is only has a finite width A, so you can think of it as a slit. Um, it passes light that's within uh, distance A, I guess within distance A over 2 of the center. Okay, so it's like a slit of width A. It will have a diffraction pattern. Here's the uh, expression for the diffraction pattern of a slit of width A. And you can see that the width, the angular width, is going to be the angle in which this diffraction pattern goes from a maximum to zero. So the maximum is going to occur at theta equals zero. Sinc of zero, sine of zero over zero is one. That's the maximum. And then it falls off to its minimum when this argument equals pi. So sinc function is sinc x is sine x over x. So in the numerator, sine x goes to 0, which is at pi. Uh, you get your first minimum. So setting this whole thing equal to pi, you find that theta has to equal lambda over a at that minimum. So we need two spots to be separated, or two beams to be separated in an angle by lambda over a to be resolved. Having a bigger 
prism width produces a narrower uh, resolve, uh, narrower diffraction patterns, allowing us to resolve more, more different wavelengths. Okay, which is why we want to illuminate the, the prism all the way out to its edges. Where is lambda zero? Up here? Yes. Okay, so this is the angular width of the uh, diffraction pattern coming out of this lens. After it travels a distance, and this lens I'm saying has a focal length f2, so it's imaged, focused down to its smallest spot, a distance f2 away. So this angular width times the distance f2 gives us a spatial width of our diffraction pattern. And so over here at our output, the width of the diffraction pattern from a perfectly monochromatic source. If you had a perfectly monochromatic source here and you pass it through, you would see some uh, diffraction pattern looks like that at the output and it would have a width of f2 lambda over a. So we're going to carry on uh, and look at other things that affect that width. We have this prism here that has a diffraction pattern. We also have this slit. So a slit produces its own diffraction pattern. So this slit will produce a diffraction pattern that after going one focal length, f1, away from the slit, has a width of f1 lambda over b, completely analogous to what we just showed for the uh, prism's diffraction pattern. That diffraction pattern, or the width of that diffraction pattern, gets imaged by this lens to have a width at the image here of, again, f2 lambda over. So just like we had the diffraction pattern at the output is f2 lambda over a, where a is the width of the beam uh, at the prism. Now we consider the width is being limited by the diffraction pattern of this slit, delta x, where delta x is f1 lambda over b. So plugging that in for delta x, we get that the width of the sort of blurry spot at our output that comes from a perfectly monochromatic light source, focused through a slit of width b, is going to have a width of b times f2 over f1. So if these telescope lenses are identical, this slit gets reproduced over there. So the narrower we make the slit, the smaller our spot will be over there, and the more spots we can resolve, the more wavelengths we can resolve. Okay, so you want a narrow slit. That's why we have a slit, is to reduce the amount of light that leaks in out here that would cause a larger blurry blurriness out there. Okay, so we have these two effects, diffraction from the slit and diffraction from the prism. Uh, the output spot is actually the convolution of those two effects, which means that the width of the output is at least as large as the sum of the diffraction pattern from the prism and the diffraction pattern from the slit. We have both diffraction patterns present, so our output 
gets broadened by both of those. Yes, it is. Where these peaks are at the output plane right here, where it shows the light being focused down. And that's where our detector would be. And so there's a couple things we can do. Uh, we can ask, well, how much of a wavelength change would produce, uh, I mean, in the absence of diffraction, how much of a wavelength change would produce uh, a shift in the output spot that same distance delta x2? Okay, so that output spot delta x2, um, if our prism changes the output angle as a function of wavelength, so it's got some dispersion, which we call d theta d lambda, and you have two wavelengths separated by delta lambda, this gives us the difference in angle of those two output beams. If we multiply that by f2, that tells us spatially how far apart the image of those two, uh, from those two wavelengths would be. So this is a spatial separation of two wavelengths separated by delta lambda. The minimum wavelength we can resolve is when this spatial separation is at least as large as this uh, blurriness of the diffraction pattern. So we need this to be greater than or equal to this. And so setting those two things equal and solving for uh, lambda over delta lambda, which is our resolving power, we get this expression here that has the dispersion and the diffraction terms in it. So greater dispersion gives you greater resolving power. Greater diffraction, because it's in the denominator, gives you worse resolving power. Okay, so looking at this expression, um, which of these parameters can you control? So where does d theta d lambda come from? That's going to be a property of the prism, how much it bends the light based on angle. That's a property of the prism. You only can control it in so much as you can select a certain prism angle and a certain glass from the manufacturer. Once you put it in your system, that's determined. A comes from the size of the prism. So again, that's not something we control. Focal lengths of the lenses, again, uh, you set those at the time you build it. The wavelength, well, whatever wavelength you're interested in measuring is the one you have to use. But B, the slit width, could be varied. Typically, the slit is on, has a micrometer that allows you to open and close it. So what should you do for best resolution to the slit? Open it up, close it down. Melissa? Make it smaller. Right, so we want to make the slit width smaller. Okay, what's the problem with making it smaller? Any less light. Essentially, that's why you don't just manufacture it with an infinitely small slit. Infinitely small means no slit at all. You don't get any light through, but you've got great resolving power, just no ability to see anything. So there's a trade-off. Okay, so 
if you take the limit where b goes to 0, then we get the maximum possible resolving power, which is just 1 over a to the minus 1, so a times d theta d lambda. That's the maximum resolving power. You can't get better than that for a prism that has a, a width a, as seen by your, your beam. The angle? This one? Yeah. This comes from this. Um, this tells me how much the prism will separate different wavelengths of light. So up here, this is the dispersion of the prism. You have two different wavelengths of light. The prism will separate it by some angle. Yeah, let me draw that. Um, get a couple colors. Let's say the geometric path that my rays take through the prism look like this for one wavelength, and for another wavelength in the same beam that come out separated. That's delta theta. And then uh, we have our lens imaging this a distance f away. So after a distance f, those are going to be separated by f delta theta. f, this is delta theta. OK, so this is a maximum possible resolving power. Uh, in practice, we don't ever achieve that. Um, the reason is we can't focus a slit all the way down to zero. So one thing that's useful to ask is how far can you focus it down? And what happens is as you focus the slit down here, the diffraction pattern of that slit over here gets wider and wider. And once it gets wider than this prism, then we're, A, we're throwing light away, and B, that light is going to end up on our detector as background noise. So we don't want that. So we're limited by the speed of the spectrometer. We want to focus B down until the uh, diffraction pattern completely fills a solid angle, acceptance angle. So that means the acceptance angle of our device if this distance is A, it's got a lens here, the half angle Theta. It's going to be a over two. Since this is a over two, divided by the focal length of that lens, and that's the width we want the uh, diffraction pattern of the slit to have. So, delta theta of the diffraction pattern, we said was uh, lambda over b. So if we set those two things equal to each other, we can solve for b. And that gives us a minimum usable slit width, 2 lambda f1 over a. Beyond that, 
although you're increasing, beyond that, you're not going to decrease the size of the slit image there. That the slit image size here will be dominated by the prism, not by the slit. Anyhow, plugging in that value for B min over here, you can see the lambda and F1 cancel lambda and F1. And we can solve for the maximum practical resolving power. And it's equal to one third of the maximum theoretical value. Okay, so that's an important point. Difference between theory and practice. Um, you may expect to see that on a test. What is the maximum resolving power? And you should either look at the wording very carefully or state in your answer uh, something to the effect of what's theoretically possible and what's practical. Um, okay, so this d theta d lambda comes from the geometry and index and dispersion of the prism. Um, I'm not going to walk through all the geometry here, but for a prism of with an apex angle of epsilon, the maximum angular dispersion that you can get obeys this expression. And it's a function of prism apex, prism apex angle and the material properties of the glass that you use. This theta is called the deviation angle. It's the difference between your input and your output angle. And the maximum uh, angular dispersion occurs where this is a symmetric situation. So your input angle is at the same angle as your output angle. Okay, and this, uh, this expression comes from differentiating this expression, which is just Snell's law. So our input angle is alpha, which through a little bit of geometry you can show is the average of theta and epsilon. And our angle in the glass is epsilon over 2. So we have Snell's law. The input sine of the input angle equals n times sound, sine of the transmitted angle. And we differentiated that to get this expression. So you can find these parameters in terms of the, the properties of the prism. Okay, so uh, what's interesting is if you take that value uh, that I just showed on the previous slide as d theta d lambda, and then you take a, which is the uh, apparent width of the prism, as seen off axis by the direction your beam is coming, and you relate that to the base of the prism, the length of the base, which I'm calling g, you have to go through a little bit of uh, a few steps to make that relationship. Uh, this angle is alpha, a is equal to d cosine alpha. It's the projection of this face, the direction you're looking. And you know that uh, d sine epsilon over 2, this is epsilon over 2, is half of g. Putting all that together lets you relate g back to a. And here's that relationship between a and g. And what's interesting is not the steps to produce this particular relationship, but plugging this value in for A, 
And what we see is that the uh, cosine of alpha here is the same as the, remember I said alpha was the average of theta and epsilon. So it's the same as cosine of theta plus epsilon over 2 in the denominator in this term. So they cancel. And the 2 sine epsilon over 2 cancels this 2 sine epsilon over 2. So a lot of this complexity disappears, cancels out, and we get for our maximum resolving power g times the nd lambda. g is the size of the prism, the base of the prism. The nd lambda is the material dispersion. So high resolving power means you need very dispersive material and you need a big prism. And the specific geometry of how you align it doesn't really matter. It all cancels out. This is the best you can do. Demschroder has a list of the dispersion of various materials. They're all in the order of 100 microradians per nanometer. Um, so you can you can play around with different materials and get slightly, slightly different values for the uh, spectral resolving power of a prism spectrometer. Um, prism spectrometers are not that common these days. Grading spectrometers are more common. The one advantage of a grading spectrometer I mentioned earlier is that uh, because it can work entirely in reflection, it can operate over a much larger spectral range, much larger uh, wavelength range. The principle of operation is exactly the same. Um, the dispersion comes from a different mechanism. In a grating, we have an input angle, and then you have a specular reflection, and then you have these diffracted orders. They're called the plus one order and the minus one order. Um, the angle of these diffracted orders obey the grating equation here. It's just some review from the introductory optics course. So sine of the input angle plus sine of the diffracted angle equals m lambda over d. And d is the pitch, the width of the grating. And you can differentiate this. So take the derivative with respect to theta m on the left-hand side and uh, the derivative with respect to lambda on the right, and then solve for d theta m d lambda. And that's how much this uh, diffracted beam is going to vary with the wavelength of the input light. So that's m over d cosine theta. So you just plug that in uh, instead of, right, instead of uh, this whole mess for the d theta d lambda calculate the maximum resolving power of the grating. Um, but like we had for the grating, there's some simplifications you can make. And kind of, not really, uh, not based on approximations, but just some nice things that cancel out. Um, here A, which is the, the effective width of the grating, the illuminated width, um, depends on, we can write it as the tooth width times the number of teeth. That's the size of the base. So if n is the number of teeth and d is the tooth width, we can write a as m, sorry, we can write a as d times n uh, times the cosine of the angle that we're illuminating it at to project that onto the uh, direction we're observing. And the d cosine theta is canceled with the d cosine theta that we had here in the dispersion and leave us with a maximum resolving power of m times n. 
n is the number of teeth that are illuminated. So that's just related to the size of the grating. m is the diffraction order from the grating equation. I've drawn the plus 1 order, the minus 1 order. You could also have a plus 2 or minus 2 higher orders. Okay, so um, very similar relationships to that of the prism spectrometer. The biggest difference is because you can have more than one output beam, whereas a prism you just have uh, one input, one output, if you see light coming out in two different directions, you don't know whether those are two different diffracted beams of the same wavelength or whether they're two different wavelengths diffracting at different angles. Okay, so you might know how much angular separation there is between two beams uh, of the same wavelength. But then if you measure, so if you're if you see light over here from your input beam, and you also see light over here, you don't know whether the light over here is, is the uh, minus first order of this beam or whether it's a different wavelength. It's different enough that that's where it's diffracted to. Now, if you know your wavelength range is small, then you may be able to say unambiguously that this must be uh, a different diffraction order from this one the same wavelength. So if you expect the wavelength range to be small, you'd expect all the output beams to be near the central beam. Okay. The maximum range of wavelengths over which that condition is met is called the free spectral range. Okay. And once, the, once you have enough range of wavelengths such that the output angles vary by as much as the diffraction angle, then you can no longer differentiate between the two effects. So that's called the free spectral range. And so if you're using the nth order diffraction beam, the free spectral range works out to be the wavelength over m. Using a first order diffraction beam, you can essentially resolve any wavelength. If you use the 10th order diffraction beam, let me go back. If you use a higher order diffraction beam, you get better resolution, better resolving power, but it comes at the cost of being able to resolve fewer wavelengths. Okay, so with all that said, uh, what are the advantages of a prism spectrometer relative to a grating spectrometer? Easier to vary what? Oh, the grating spectrometer has a slit as well. It has everything the same. It's just take out the prism, put in a grating. Related to this.
what range of wavelengths can you measure on a prism spectrometer? What's that limited by? a few things, but the, the wavelengths at which you can operate at are primarily determined by the transmission of your optics, mainly your prism. Um, so you can get optics that transmit over the entire visible range, for instance. What about a grading spectrometer? What limits the range of wavelengths over which you can measure? The free spectral range limits it. So essentially what happens is um, you can measure over a certain range of wavelengths before um, wave, multiple wavelengths uh, diffract from the grading at the same angle. Okay, so that's one of the disadvantages of a prism spectrometer. Um, What's the advantage to using a high diffraction order in a grading spectrometer? I'll go back. Spectral resolving power? Yeah. Yep. So spectral resolving power, higher the number, the better your resolution. So using a higher order is a very easy way to increase your resolution. Um, if you like having a higher, or higher number here means small changes in the wavelength will produce larger changes in the output angle. Um, the downside to that, what is the downside to that using a higher diffraction order? It might be useful for me to draw a little picture here. Say this is our grading, and we illuminate it. With light that diffracts at a certain angle. By measuring the angle at which the light diffracts, we're going to infer the wavelength of that light. And now we have another wavelength that we illuminate it with. So maybe the first order diffraction, those are separated by some small angle. There's higher order diffraction as well. So this is the, I'll call that the M equals, well, I'm not even going to give it a, well. There's M equals 1. Here's M equals 2. M equals 3. M equals 4 diffracted beams. So this is M equals 1. M equals 2, the angle, for the sake of this drawing, let's make the angle twice as big. It's a little more complicated because it involves signs, but twice as big, and it's a bigger angle. And then M equals 3, let's consider this case. So you can look with your detector over here 
And at various points along the detector, you see illumination. You attribute those to different wavelengths. Right? At higher angles, those same two wavelengths are separated by a greater distance. So you can resolve them better. You can resolve more angles in between. But if we go too far, what happens is um, we're trying to, let's say we're operating over here, we're trying to detect the difference between the uh, red and blue rays in the third order. If we see power over here that may be the fourth order red ray overlapping with the hitting our detector. Okay. And so as you go to higher orders, you get a reduced free spectral range. So sort of the free spectral range determines over what, uh, how much the wavelength can vary and uh, you still only have a single order hitting your detector, your, your detector over here. Okay, so those are issues. Free spectral range is uh, an issue that's common in interferometric measurements as well. And in fact, in interferometric measurements, we can operate in, I mean, the equivalent, the analogy to a diffraction grating is that we can operate in orders that are millions so that the resolution can be millions of times better than a spectrometer but the free spectral range is millions of times worse. And essentially what that means, we'll talk more about interferometers next time and show this, but with an interferometer, you can make, you can observe very small changes to a wavelength, but it's almost impossible to, to know with any absolute certainty what wavelength you're observing. Okay, so uh, that'll be I'll have to get some pictures fixed before next time. Uh, okay, so let's recap. There are four properties of spectrometers. So before you look at your notes, can anyone name one of the four properties that describe the operation of a spectrometer? Okay, speed. Good. And what is speed? You can use more general terms than that if you want. Okay. So it's how much light it can admit, or the solid angle of the light that it can admit. What are some of the other properties? So resolving power? So it's usually called spectral resolving power. And that's related to the minimum wavelength uh, that you can resolve. So it's an inverse of that, and it's normalized to the wavelength you're looking at. So it's just a number without units. Uh, a spectrometer that can resolve one nanometer difference in wavelength measured in the visible spectrum, what would its resolving power be, spectral resolving power? I guess 550 was easy too. 
500. If you can resolve one nanometer change in a 500 nanometer beam, your spectral resolving power is 500. Resolve a one nanometer change in a one micron beam, your spectral resolving power is 1,000. OK, a uh, couple other properties. Maybe you want to use the same spectrometer to measure an infrared spectrum, and then later on you want to measure an ultraviolet spectrum. What determines whether or not you can do that? Yeah, so what we, there are various mechanisms that limit what wavelengths we can use. So the range of wavelengths we can use is called the spectral transmission. It's more of an issue for prism spectrometers that have transmissive optics than it is for diffract, uh, diffraction spectrometers. Okay, and then the last one. Related to this diagram here, free spectral range. So, can someone tell me in your own words what free spectral range is? maximum distance between two wavelengths you can't look at. So in a way, spectral resolving power tells us the minimum distance we need to resolve two wavelengths. Free spectral range tells us the maximum wavelength difference we can have between two wavelengths. Okay, so uh, you'll have a chance to practice this on the homework. The homework is due on Wednesday next week. Wednesday next week is also our first midterm. So um, the homework will be on the midterm. If you want a chance to look at the solutions before the midterm, uh, all you have to do is turn in your homework early. When you, as soon as you turn in your homework, I'll give you a copy of the solutions. Okay. Otherwise, you'll get it at the beginning of class. You'll have the solutions during the exam. It'll be open note, open note, open book. So. <laughs>